Hey, Brian. Hey, Elliot. What's the talk of the table? Today, we are sitting down with Taylor Moore from Fortunate Horse. He is the editor and sound designer for a little actual play podcast you might be familiar with called Worlds Beyond Number. Taylor Moore, thanks for coming back. Welcome, welcome. Oh, it's so good to be back. Prego. Uh, I'm very excited to have this uh, now third installment of our long-running conversation about actual plays and podcasts. Is this number three? Number number three? three? Oh, time Number one for me. Look at how tall you're both getting. (laughs) (laughs) Elliot, I, of course, follow your height on social media. Of course, yeah. yeah. I do post it every week. Just just pictures of the crayon marks. It's about accountability. Yeah, my engagement hack is posting small variations in height from week to week. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that might work. Yeah. So so one of our goals for this conversation is to talk specifically about uh, the first arc of Worlds Beyond Number. Because the last time we talked, like nine months ago or something, you were – I think you had just released episode one of Worlds Beyond Number when we last talked – and near the end of that conversation, you said that you've called a lot of shots. You don't know. No one's really thrown you the first pitch yet. And to check back after arc one to see if you were successful in what you wanted to do. So the first question is, with arc one complete, do you think you did everything you wanted to do with that show? No. It never, <laughs> never. That, listen, that never occurs. <laughs> that never happens. It, like... Uh, th- you you never hit a hundred percent. You never do everything you want to do. You never nail every choice. That real, you know, that full rush of validation. The the when the guys finally go full Monty or Billy Elliot ballet dances across the stage. <laughs> I'm thinking only of UK based dance feel good <laughs> movies at this time in my life. Well, yeah. Uh, you know, like that. The actual full climax never comes. There's always like, oh, we can do better. Oh, we can do this. Am I happy with the way things have gone? Oh, baby, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. Amazing. One of the questions you asked, kind of within that question, is like, check back in and let me know if the sound design and the music is still supporting the story in the ways you hope it are. And I, and I would say, like, from that metric of success, as a listener, as a fan of the show, nailed it. I think the sound design nailed and the music it. supported so many, oh. so many moments in that show. A couple of the big ones for me were like the sound design of the Derek. Uh, was one of those things that literally stopped me in my tracks while I was listening to it, where I was just like, hold on, something is happening I need to pay attention to. Um, and then, of course, the uh, the folk song in Port Talon at the end. Two big moments that I think like really showed the arc of how far you had come, even though you started off very skilled, I would say, but like improved over that season. Do you feel like you improved over the course – or not that season, that arc. Do you feel like you improved over the course of the arc? Oh, 100%. First of all, thank you so much for saying that. I Like, those are also some of my favorite moments for sure. Like, getting to make that stuff was was great. And yeah, I mean, my God, like, this is all still really, really new to me. Like, I'm still learning so many fundamentals even, you know, it, not, I say even now. But it's just like, it's still very early, you know. This is all composing and things, things like this is still very new to me. And I even still... You know, like one of my hobbies is just like watching YouTube tutorials or online classes about 
sound design and music stuff. I mean, I, I, there's always these fundamental things that I still haven't fully grasped yet that I'm still getting a hang of. I still don't understand compression. I still fuck up the mix sometimes. <laughs> uh, no, but like, but the, but moving from like the, when the series first launched to the end of chapter one, I mean, yeah, like you're always trying to get better and figure it out, especially to someone who's as new, new to music, especially as I am like, yeah, I just learned so much in the early early days but also the structure of the show is just like you know it's like the best part of the joke is the punchline so obviously you know like the, the most exciting part of the story is it like the middle bits where the heroes are concerned you know are like looking for their friend or putting the game back together it's the climax that is the really fun part where you get to go really bananas I mean, you know, like the the originator of this story has long been discredited, <laughs> but he tells a story that he 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 uh, was writing for this movie, uh, and um, they were screening the movie for focus groups, and they were watching the focus group screen the movie, and um, the way that they used to do this in some circumstances was you would have a the focus group would have a knob, each person would have a knob in front of them, and if they enjoyed what they were seeing, they turn it to the right, and if they didn't like or weren't sure about what they were seeing, they turn it to the left right and the executives came back and they're like hey we got the results of the focus group back like as you can see the graph shows a lot of enjoyment in these lines so let's just cut all the other lines or can you make every line that high and the writer was like yeah those are the punchlines. Right. Like people are enjoying the punchline more than the setup that's just the way it works so yeah so like designing like this absolutely bonkers uh this giant climax and finale this huge scale um it, yeah i mean that was so much fun definitely my favorite part i love the beginning too I, I loved working on the like the prequels the 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 first scenes where you meet each character and sort of introduction to the world that's one of my favorite things i've ever gotten to work on uh but yeah that climax of chapter one that was a lot of fun and that and that was i mean it, you know i yeah it, that was a ton of work too and there was a lot of a lot of original music and a lot of sound design that went into that and we really made sure to try and nail it as much as we could which is an easier you know my job is is easiest when the people at the table are clicking when the story is clicking, right? People making choices, events occurring, uh, exploring like the sort of the real magic and strangeness of the world and then having these literally big events occur, like size, you know, truly large-sized things go. Making sounds for big stuff is better than small stuff. Um, you know, when, when stuff at the table is that exciting uh, and that fun and that clear and that fast, uh, then it's it, it makes supporting it uh, even easier. I remember uh, for one of our seasons, actually that I was designing right around the time that we talked last, it was for a game called Die. And in the fourth episode, or I think the fifth episode, five of six, a character uses some of their powers to invert a mountain. And I remember like we played that and I was like, this is really cool. And then after we finished, I was like, how the fuck am I going? <laughs> what is that? Um it ended up working out really well. It ended up coming together. But that was, I think, in my entire sound designing career, that was one of the, like, three things that I was least sure I would have been able to accomplish. I'm curious, going into that finale, was there any, were there any, like, moments where you were like, 50-50, this works? I say that, you know, when it's good at the table, it makes it easy on me. It makes it easy in the way that the ask is obvious, right? Like, good play is, like, 
it's very clear when an important moment is happening. You know, like the action is clear, the decisions are clear, the character lines, the plot lines, all that's very clear, and there's clear momentum. That clarity makes it easy to envision how I can support it, but it often means it is going to be more difficult to execute that vision because the vision is grander, because it calls on you to answer that moment with support, sound design, music, and editing that supports the level of play you're working on. You know, so even even though the vision is clear, the execution is more difficult and has to be more, is more demanding and has to be more exacting you know, to support the players. So yeah, everything in the, every, everything in the climax, I was like, Oh God, how in the world am I going <laughs> to, you know, rise to the level that the players are achieving at the table. And, you know, there was also, you know, there were some moments uh, where like the plot, some character choices needed some very finessed editing because you really cannot afford to, you know, actual play is so one of the wonderful things about it is people can hear you making it up on the spot. And because of that, there's a lot, there's, there's a real wonderful innate leeway that the audience will give you on a lot of things. Um, but in moments like this, where the dramatic tension and the plot and the characters are firing on all these cylinders like that, you cannot, you can't afford to have like a misstep, you know, like the audience will forgive a lot of things, but if you make a mistake that fucks up the rhythm of the, of the excitement they're feeling, even if they're nice people, there's some level, some, you know, there's, there's on some emotional level, they'll think, oh, how dare you take that moment away from me? How dare you undercut it with like one stray word that's out of character or that fights the emotion of the scene? And, you know, they would never say that. They definitely would say it. You know, I'm sure someone's on Reddit saying it right now. <laughs> it's, especially when it's coming from post-production, you're like, your, your job is to get out of the way and enhance. And if you get in the way of something that is happening, the exactly. biggest thing you can commit. Or if it's just like, you know, a player drops their dice. <laughs> right. You know, not their fault. We all drop a die. Uh, um, but like if I leave it in, oh my God, that's a betrayal. That's such a betrayal of the – sometimes you leave it in if it's funny. But if you're in the middle of the scene where, you know, uh, fucking lose character is at the bottom of the ocean, literally atoning with the father great spirit, you know, yeah. baby – you have to, you got to protect your cash. You got to protect the listener. Yeah, you can't, so can't hear in the background like, oh shit, fuck, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, no. So, you know, no little missteps like that. But I, I think we did okay. I mean, I'm I'm glad I resonated with you. Working on it was a challenge, but it's some of my favorite stuff we've ever done. I'm curious. Another thing that you said last time that I want to check back in on. I feel like this is a good thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you honest on something that you said before. And that was that when we were talking, you were working like 40 to 80 hours per episode and you, uh, I quote, this is unsustainable and irresponsible amount of time to put into each episode. <laughs> so, so my question is, have you become more sustainable and or more responsible? Yes and no. Uh, <laughs> so those, those episodes, like I, I would say the post-production hours on episode 12, 12 up through 16, those episodes range between like 80 to 120 hours each episode. Cause we're talking Shit. about Bleh. our, we're talking about hours of original music. Right. Right. We're talking about massive amounts, as much sound design as would go into say a short feature film, you know, so that, that those were a lot of work. Uh, I also, 
I don't want to get, I don't know if this is too in the weeds, but also for our second chapter where the characters arrive at the Citadel, I wanted to write a, a really front load that chapter with a lot of original music that I would then use recurrently throughout the chapter, as opposed to what I did in chapter one, which is write as needed, which ended up being pretty wild. So those episodes were a lot of work. That drove me pretty insane. Uh, <laughs> that was that was tough. But I'm so happy to say that Jared Olson, who's been editing Unprepared Casters, uh, is now working with us as a sound, yeah. designer, desi- sound designer and editor. It's fantastic. Uh, he's been with us for like several episodes now, and he's a joy to work with. So no, I'm no longer carrying the burden a- a- alone anymore. There you go. I also remember that there were a few times where you pushed an episode by a day or two, which like I did have the little thought, having heard the first uh, interview, where I was like, good, Taylor's not pulling sleepless nights. He's, he's, <laughs> he's taking the extra day or two. Too. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was an extra day or two and sleepless nights. Yeah, okay, you know? there we go. Oh, like, <laughs> and I, I really feel like only in the last few months, like there uh, have I really met, and thank God, Jared Olson, let me tell you something about this fella. Uh, got his certification in Pro Tools, which is the the uh, infamously oh, sure. difficult to work with uh, software that we used to edit the show. So now we're much more capable. But man, I feel like, and I'm sure uh, producers will appreciate this, like every episode, some sort of disaster happened. Like something weird would happen. That fucking software, let me tell you, it's just like if you upgrade the firmware on your USB-C audio interface that you're just using for headphones and that doesn't match the latest update of Pro Tools, it will cause a domino effect of like weird data, weird like memory problems that results in a like bonkers like slowdown of the entire software that takes days to find out because the software's been around so long. You go online and you look for like troubleshooting and it, it has it, there's results that go back to like 1998 <laughs> it's just it's very it's impo- it's so hard to work with for anyone starting out in this go with logic just do logic i wish i had done logic don't do it but no it was just, all these crazy technical stuff though thank god the last couple of episodes there has not been uh any sort of disaster praise but yeah there was some episode in that series that came out where i am not kidding you Pro Tools was making my computer crash every five minutes. Oh, God. And editing the last, like... (laughs) No, thank you. (laughs) Like, trying to finish it. So it's like for two days, you know, trying to, like, export and finish and save, and every five minutes it crashed. Uh, I mean, that was... It was dark days around here. It was dark days around here. So there's, like, you know, there's, like, stuff like that. And in addition to those episodes were just... Un, you know, an unbelievable amount of work. And to be clear, that's an unbelievable amount of work that, you know, I am, cho- we are choosing to make a sure. show that is good enough to, and you're being hope. compensated for uh, importantly. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I like, although I'll be honest, I think, <laughs> you know, uh, there's this great, um, there's this great, uh, Gilliam Welch song. Uh, Everything is free. Now it has a line in it <laughs> about like, you know, they uh, they figured it out. We were going to do it anyway for free. I, I do think. <laughs> I mean, listen, you know, I, I back when we were launching um, uh, Rude Tales and, and Fun City, I was putting as much work into those episodes. You can't hear it because I didn't know what I was – I had far less skill back then. Um, but I was putting very high hours back into that. We weren't making a cent. I think you, you, get, a, you get a project you love and um, – uh, there is something inside of you that just compels you to try to make it to the way you see that it could be, even if it hurts. And that can lead to a lot of like 
you know, subconscious self-abuse, what it turns out to be, a masochism. And like, I do think that a lot of creators I've worked with have had this this idea in their mind, and I certainly suffer from it to some degree, that it isn't right that you don't suffer a little bit in making the thing. Mm. Uh, and you can, you can look at that from like almost a spiritual level where it's like, I don't deserve to make the thing I want to make unless I suffer for it. Um, you know, you can, you can chalk that up to like this old idea of like, um, starving artist. Yeah. Like that, that, that it is right and somehow like poetically correct to suffer for your craft or art or whatever it is. I don't know. And some of that's true and some of that's bad. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm no judge of, of what's what and all that, but I, I do think I would do it for free, but no, I mean, you know, Putting that much work into it is, but that, at the end of the day, it's a choice. You know, no one's chaining me to the radiator and whipping me until um, the episode is very good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel like we've come into the, a lot of the same stuff too, because we'll put in, depending on the episode, between like 20, 30, 40 hours an episode. And we're only just starting to make some money. And it's certainly some not Some being the operative word. Some yeah. being that some is doing a lot of heavy Some's lifting. Some's doing there. a lot of work there. <laughs> yeah. But it is like every season or like every every other time we do this, we change a little bit of our process to make it better, to make it more streamlined, to make it easier, to make it better, to make it bigger. And it's just for the love of it. It's just because, like, if we're going to do it, we're going to do it right. And here's the way to do it right. And the only way to do it right, at least in in our minds, for the type of show we want to make, is putting in 40 hours per episode, despite yeah. everything. But crucially, we're pushing back on the need to suffer. And <laughs> and uh, we moved to bi-weekly this year to be oh, more sustainable good. on our end. Because yes. we were doing yes. – we did, we did 80 episodes last year, which is just – just an insane thing to do. Um, and also, given that Brian is our sole sound designer, an, an even more insane thing to do. There was – Taylor, I don't know – I don't think we were doing this yet uh, when we last talked. But in on September 15th last year, we released uh, a season of the game Yazeba's Bed and Breakfast. And yes. we released eight episodes, fully sound designed, each like between 45 minutes and an hour and 45 minutes with – between five and nine cast members per episode all on one day. We released them all on September 15th as a big drop. And let me tell we you. We thought it was cute. It was, it was very cute because like, like within, within the world of Eugene's Bed and paper. Breakfast. Yeah. Yeah. On paper. The, the night before, it doesn't feel so cute, does it? <laughs> Honestly, the, the week before, I was like, I don't know. I had one episode left and it was the biggest episode and it had nine people in it. And just like the first edit pass took me like 10 hours. Um, but we put it all out, and it felt very cute, and it was fun, and I'm glad we did cute. it. But let me tell you, the combination of a surprise season that we did not announce in any way and a large drop season did not uh, did yield not great out. turnout. <laughs> Which is a huge bummer because it's one of, honestly one of like, the it's, best it's things It's one of the best out. things we put out. Yeah. It's, so if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to our Yuzaba <laughs> season – Forget Taylor Moore. Go listen to the Yuzaba season. Um, <laughs> Forget <laughs> come me. back after. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, come back after. Like, you still come back, but you know. Actually, so wait, I've got a, I've got a little thing queued up here that I think is just fun. This isn't necessarily for the conversation, but it's just fun. I messaged you sometime last year when I was designing Die uh, because in Worlds Beyond Numbers, like second or third episode, there was an effect that you did that I thought that like truly was the first thing in that show that blew me out of the water. And it was the sound design for the voice of the man in black. 
Yes. And it directly inspired, I basically just did my take of it for Die. So I've got both clips. I want to play them back to back. So yeah. uh, hopefully you should be able to hear this. So this is uh, first from Worlds Beyond Number, Brendan Lee Mulligan as the man in black. I am an old friend of Grandmother Wren's. Come to pay my respects. Too muddy. Should have put an EQ on that thing. <laughs> See, I really like it. Uh, and then this was <laughs> this was uh, my version. You hear it though. You hear the mud. Oh yeah. But, yeah, I, but okay. I like they're nodding. But I like Listen, the, they're uh, nodding. But I like the the gravel and the like the flames almost underneath it. The gravel um, is styrofoam. You told me mm. that afterwards, and I was like, God yeah. damn it. Uh, so yeah. this is this is my version. Um, also has a muddiness issue, but it's uh, Draconics playing Enoch uh, from our Die series. Flee. You are strong, child, but I am beyond strength. I am the end. I am a god killer. I am daylighted. That's you great. Can, you can hear... That's just the man in black. <laughs> That's just me. Oh, really? To I, do thought that. It sounded, I thought it sounded very different, but I thought it sounded I think great. There's a, there's a difference that you took with it that I think is very apparent. Like I, I, I played a lot with, because like my main sound effect underneath, it was there was like a vocal layer, there was like a little touches layer, but the main thing was like pulling up and down on a wildfire sound effect. So like every time you talk, you like almost like wildfire coming out, um, which I thought Are was Are you doing cool. that manually? Yeah. <laughs> My man, let me introduce you to a plugin called Krotos Reformer. Krotos we'll talk later. Reformer. Okay, okay. Yeah, uh, I'll put it on the list. Save you hours. Uh, I don't necessarily have a question for for this tangent. <laughs> but good job. The question. <laughs> oh, yeah, I just wanted to show off. You know? Sounded great. I'll tell you what that. I'll tell you what that taught me because I remember when Brian was working on this and we we went back and forth on that vocal effect a lot and um like the first pass definitely wasn't quite there and then we heard that episode he reached out to you and it's like what amazes me about sound design broadly and what i've learned watching brian do it and then listening to your work is how it is just a game of layers so often like it is just like you always there's any given sound you're hearing, there's probably at least three more layers than you think there are mm -hmm. in that sound for it to sound real. But one of the things you talked about in the um, Worlds Beyond Number sound design and music talkback on the Patreon was – this was the thing I loved – was that you have this – sound of a backpack being opened things being pulled out of it put back in that you use for like every pocket every bag every like rustling of clothes and that's another one of those like little little fun tricks that is just delightful i also when you said that i was so i you need to send me that sound effect because the sound <laughs> of someone going into a pocket is the fucking hardest that and someone giving a hug I've never been able to get it to sound like someone giving a hug without the back pad. I don't want this episode to become a commercial for a plug-in company, <laughs> but we will talk offline and I will solve all these problems for you. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> um, so I guess we should probably transition out if anybody is still here after all the uh, the nerding out on, on audio. Yeah, um, dog. You love tabletop role-playing games, and now we're going to talk about sidechain compression. <laughs> so one of the things that – and I this is my first time getting to talk to you in this sort of three-part chain. But one of the things that you and Brian talked about in the last conversation that was so compelling to me was the way that you approach – 
business in this industry, the way you approach actual play, things like consensus-based decision-making, flat hierarchies, profit-sharing, all of that. There's been a big conversation happening right now about money and APs. We have it offline. We have it on mic with several different people, Rowan Zioli, Ned Donovan, uh, Dr. Emily Friedman. So many people are thinking about this question of how do we put money into actual play? And obviously you are in a very unique position now for money in actual play, but you have a history of money in actual play as well. And I'm kind of curious where where you come at this thought of money in actual play. Great. Well, uh, that's – I I unfortunately have a lot to say about this. Um, uh, but <laughs> also – Batten down the hatches, everybody. <laughs> when I, I think I saw some of the conversation online that you're talking about. And my initial reaction is like – very positive. Th- that people are talking about this is really good. That is a great sign because it means that people innately feel like there's a future to it, which is great. <laughs> you know, if people were saying, what's the next thing after actual play? I'd be like, oh God, oh God, oh God. <laughs> don't, don't make me go back to grad school, please. Please. Oh God, don't make me get another fucking office job. Like, I need this, baby. Come on, help Taylor out. Uh, but th- that, that we are thinking of like, hey, we love this. And, I, and I, this is where I think that these ideas are coming from, is we love this thing. And people are correctly realizing that in order for it to exist, somebody's got to pay for it, right? Uh, and then asking the question, can we bring in those resources and make the genre and all the projects within it more sustainable, right? That That to me is like the best possible way to ask that question. Because money on its own – is not good, right? Money it only it's only good because it allows us to do actually fun and beautiful things. If you think money's good on its own, you become a sort of hedge fund mantis lord, you know, sort of, you know, avatar of the great machine intelligence that's just here to to use mankind as batteries. Uh, <laughs> you know. So I, I think that the question to you know, the question isn't how do we get more money in, or it, it is really. But the reason that question is interesting and the right one to be asking is I mean, I've gone on and on and on about this in so many places, so I'll keep it short. But I think tabletop role-playing games are transcendently amazing. They represent like a fundamental new way to exist socially and to and to, to a sort of particip- participatory social folk art that did not exist really before they they existed. Uh, and now we get to live in a world with them. And that's – it's very strange and new to have something so fundamental and cool be created so recently in our timeline, right? I mean, you know, that was only, what, 70 years ago, uh, you know, 50 years ago. Really, I think someone might say that they, they were made. Don't email me about the dates. Uh, <laughs> uh, Dr. Freeman, you can just text me. <laughs> uh, um, that's cool. And that those games have taught us Along and this, people are gonna get mad and they're gonna think this is so stupid. Fuck you, losers! I got the mic and you don't. <laughs> oh, start your own podcast if you disagree. Or the come on ours. T- the, No, don't allow anyone to disagree with me on your show. Look, the, like it is a miracle that like oh, here I go. Here I'm gonna get in trouble. Improv comedy and tabletop role playing games became a real thing within like 15, 20 years of each other. 
right? So you have these two, two things grow, and then the internet comes along and makes distribution of culture essentially free, so, so cheap to almost be free. Those things combine, all these things combine, and we get this genre called actual play, which really, if we want to, it it's not doesn't really have to involve previously published tabletop role-playing games. We can say that this is a guided-by-rules, improvised serial narratives. Not all shows are even serial. Some are episodic, you know? we've sort of created this new medium of expression, which I would even argue is really just a new production technique, that game rules are a technology that allow us to organize the creation of art, theater, culture, and things like that. Uh, I think that fucking rules. That is great. I fucking love it so much. I think it's fantastic. But it is threatened, um, like all human practices are, by losing the material basis that allows it to exist. So if we're all working 12 hours a day with no free time and no money, we cannot afford to make this art, right? So, And this is not actual play. This is human joy, life, culture, just the things we all... This is true about everything. And to that end, my first recommendation to people asking this question and having this conversation is stop thinking about the question as a question of actual play and start thinking about it you know, as a, uh, a big question of how do you make culture online and make it financially sustainable. And that, if, if you forget that it's involved with APs at all and remember that it's a question that all creators from the enormous entertainment institutions down to a single person writing a blog, then you see that, that is, that's a universal question, right? We are people that are, are trying to have relationships and make art that we like in this new distribution mode. How do we pay for it? And that is not a new question. Uh, everyone has faced that question from Michelangelo looking, you know, talking, trying to negotiate his Sistine Chapel fee to the church, uh, you know, all the way up through to like, how do I, how do I, what, what image do I put as my Patreon banner? These are all sort of fundamentally the same question. It's just how do we provide for a material basis for our work? Uh, and I think that once you break out of like thinking it's an AP specific thing, answers will begin to present themselves because musicians have been dealing with this. Visual artists are, have been dealing with it and are dealing with it in a major way now with the rise of, uh, like, we decided that the first thing we were going to do with the superpower of artificial intelligence is to put all our, our, our visual artists out of a job. God damn it. It's a sick society. <laughs> it makes me, nothing gets my blood boiling like that. I understand, like, that is a tricky thing to fight. It's, it's, it, 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 it's a big change that we're going through through. But also, you know, you look at uh, TV has changed. Movies have changed. The recent strike, right? A lot of the things they were asking for in the in the strike demands were a reaction to how the industry technologically has changed, right? Streaming, the rise of streaming. So all artists, all culture makers have to answer these questions as the world and technology and the distribution models change, not specific to AP. And I think that you can look at, so for instance, one of the questions I saw was, well, how, you know, right now a lot of APs are sponsored by ads. We want to get away from that. I think that's great. I think getting away from advertising is fantastic. Now, I've sold a lot of ads on my shows. Some I liked, some I didn't. Um, I always felt the best about ads when it was like for another show, for another actual play project. I mean, there are like shows I like that I found out because they bought ads. It's not like all bad. It's not tainted with evil stuff. But I do think in general, it's good to get away from advertising as much as possible. And I'll touch on why later. But if you, so how do you move away from advertising to a subscription model, for example? Well, there's a lot of things 
There's a lot of people that have done that, right? And also when we say AP, a lot of people assume that AP means video AP. I would say break out of that box, look at what podcasts are doing, look at what non-AP videos are doing for subscriptions. HBO, right? TV was a completely ad-supported, like free broadcast, ad-supported model, and then HBO comes along and says, no, we're going to charge you money up front. <laughs> like, you are going to subscribe. How? Like, why did HBO think that was possible? What did HBO do to make that make sense for people that paid that subscription? How did they market it? What was their plan? Right? So we, and, you know, and imagine having, like, being the first subscription TV channel. That's why, like, that's a big step. And, and, you know, I would say if you go back and look at the, the writing and the stories of how HBO was made, that'll tell you a lot about moving from broadcast to subscription. I would also say, you know, look at the difference between the kinds of shows, and I'm talking about podcasts here, that are free but ad-supported. What kind of things do they make? What kind of audience do they have? And look at the ones that... You don't hear very much about, but you go, you go to Patreon and they're in the top 10. Well, wait a minute. You know, that's a very different thing, right? You know, Worlds Beyond Number has done very well on the Patreon. You're not going to see us be written up in a newspaper about like the biggest podcast in the world. Why is, you know, why is that? It, it, it's because they're different business models. When you're moving from pay to subscription, you're talking about a fundamentally different emotional relationship with the listener, that's it. And also, it should also be mentioned that like Dungeons and Daddies and Worlds Beyond Number, most podcasts that are subscription supported have a free offering and then paywalled content that's uh, in addition to it or you know runs alongside it. There's a lot of different ways to think about it. There are podcasts that are funded by Kickstarter projects to fund a season. I know that when I was working at Kickstarter, I saw a lot of projects come through from the UK where the uh, audio audio fiction tradition is much more like rich and universal sure. over there. Um, <laughs> yeah, like Doctor who nerds will know what I'm talking about. You know, Douglas Adams oh, yeah. nerds will know what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, like, they, they're much more comfortable with, like, radio drama, quote-unquote, than, than Americans are. Uh, and so they could have, like, a group of six people with a history in audio fiction say, we're raising money for a new season of our show. It's going to be 20 grand. Pay us. And, they, and the, the Kickstarter would be successful. Um, uh, you know, and uh, so there's a lot of different ways to talk about Funding, either subscription or funding a season all in one go from your fan base um, that I think are very, very much worth having. Because when you have an industry that is majority supported by advertising, that is – and like I said, some advertising is really sweet and great and it represents us all sort of helping each other out and that's fantastic. But – we have to look at like the systemic effect across hundreds or thousands of people and shows. And the systemic effect of advertising is not the worst case scenario. We'll talk about that in a second. But it's the, it's the medium bad case scenario because the stuff you make is always going to be beholden to the people you that th th pay you to make it. And in that case, it is advertisers. And if you want to make art that your advertisers don't like, that's a problem. You might not get to make it. And now that's true for everyone. But in my experience, and I, I, I think I've helped, I've, you know, I've run half a dozen Patreons. I've run half a dozen Kickstarters. I've worked with hundreds of creators. I've raised tens of millions of dollars for different kinds of projects across every cultural category, including heavy blankets. I worked on the <laughs> The heavy blanket kicks. So I've I've seen hardware people, software. I've seen writers and actors and musicians, all this stuff. And uh, technically, yes, being direct funding from fans gives the fans a lot of power, right? But 
I've just never seen that power used to affect an artist in the way that I have seen advertising dollars used to affect an artist. And so I would say that the ideal scenario is direct funding, be it eventized crowdfunding like something like Kickstarter or a subscription-based thing like Patreon or, you know, just doing like one-off ticketed live events. You know, with, there's there's a lot of new platforms for that. They're doing very well, especially after the pandemic, that, you know, you can do a live stream. It's a paid ticketed event. I did see, and this is this is and this is where we come to the Old Testament prophet who is, you know, wearing a sackcloth, uh, lighting himself on fire and screaming at everyone from the side of the the street. I did see some people talking about the idea of getting more money into the actual play space and interpreting that as meaning bringing in investors like large companies, large production companies, large brands, right? Things like that. Look. (laughs) Advertisers times 100, right? It's advertisers times 100. And I'm not saying it's all evil or all wrong. It's, it's inevitable. And look, I have, I've talked with I've, – I've had long conversations with people at some of these large companies that are paying for actual play. And I found them to be kind, funny, reasonable, good-hearted people, 100%. More than usual <laughs> other companies I've spoken to for other things. Pretty great. Uh, and they're companies I like. Uh, but you got to think systemically. You got to remember that a lot of abuses that we see uh, in the entertainment industry and across all industries, but, uh, you know, the, the ones in the entertainment industry have gotten the most press coverage. Those instances of abuse are made possible because money, capital, and power are bottlenecked into a few people. And then everyone is incentivized to go along with them and protect them and kiss their ass. And it gives that small group of people a lot of power. And when you have a giant power imbalance like that, abuse is inevitable. 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 It is inevitable. I would even argue that a severe seesaw, a severe, you know, a severely disparate amount of power and capital in groups is inherently bad and inherently a form of abuse um, because, you know, it, because it limits what is what is possible within, you know, the, the human joy and culture and life. But if so, I guess <laughs> I would say to the people who are asking for more of that kind of activity to uh, shut the fuck up. And I say this out of pure <laughs> love. I really to just coming in on. I love how, how much you were up. tiptoeing around it, and then you were just like, you know what? Never mind. Let's swing the bat. Listen, <laughs> if we want to, if we want to talk, we want to talk about bringing more money in the space. Hell yes. And you know, yeah, there's going to be some big investment properties that already have been. There are going to be some more, and it's fine. But the internet, as annoying as it is, <laughs> as awful as it is sometimes, it allowed us to go around the gatekeepers. And that brings its own challenges. And I understand that those challenges can be so frustrating that it makes you yearn for the other way. But just remember (laughs) that that other way inevitably goes very, very, very bad. And you will find yourself 
again wishing that there were no gatekeepers uh, and that we did not exist purely under the thumb of bottlenecked power and capital. So if if we're looking to bring more money in the space, I would say yes. Show me experimentation on Kickstarter. Show me experimentation on Patreon. Uh, show me the arise, uh, like the, the 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 rise of new collectives. You know, because for shows that aren't making quite enough to make things happen, if they combined resources, they might be able to share some re- right to share some things. Maybe one show you can't afford a full time social person, but if you combine resources with three other shows, then you've got essentially a default. You call it a collective, call it a network, call it a fucking commune, call it a co op. It doesn't matter. But maybe you can share resources and then get that full time social media person or an assistant editor or stuff like that, you know, combine, like instead of asking for money, mommy and money, daddy to come in and save you, I would say, try to ignore that feeling (laughs) and instead derive your meaning and value from helping others and working with others, not asking for the big money help to be saved, but being that save for someone else and to work in groups. That is really how you will make meaning and value, not just money wise, but actually have this thing that you're making, the actual way you make those decisions and the way you work, create value and meaning in your life. And it's frustrating, and there's parts of it that are very hard, but those problems are far preferable to the, to the classic problems we have when you have all the money and power at the top. Hey there, it's Elliot from the Many Sided Media team. In addition to playing and producing here on My First Dungeon, I'm also a game designer known for such games as Something is Wrong with the Chickens, a rules-like game of chickens, eldritch horror, and revenge. Project Echo, a solo time travel game played in the pages of a planner. And the upcoming Rom-Com Drama Bomb, a three-player game of meet-cutes and mayhem. If you like weird and unique games and want to bring something new to your table, head to moreblueberries.shop and use code MYFIRSTDUNGEON for 20% off your order. That's M-O-R-E-B-L-U-E-B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot shop. Thanks! I feel like there is kind of a, a a problem with actual plays as as a whole, as far as like getting more money into the space, in that we are inherently a luxury product, like as as is most entertainment. And so we, we've reached out to, uh, for my first dungeon, we've reached out to a bunch of like publishing companies about uh, sponsoring us for various seasons. And some have said yes, some have said no. But the thing that all of them say, regardless of like, if they're running a Kickstarter or if they're running something on Backerkit, they would get a better return on investment for sure if they just gave more money to Backerkit. And it's trying to get over the hump of like, I don't know, we're, maybe we're offering more long-term, uh, more long-term value. I don't really know. It, it's, it's so much more of a question that I think anyone giving money to actual plays has to really believe in it and love it and see it's see a long-term value because it's not going to be quick return. I wholeheartedly agree. And I think that that's true for all art, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Like that is like, we cannot expect to just like churn out some mediocre stuff we didn't try very hard on and then just, well, some people can. But that's the thing about entertainment is some people just are just charming and fun. And I, like I have a, I'm not going to mention it by name. There's a podcast I love. It's a political podcast. I love it so fucking much. 
those people could talk into a tin can and say nothing funny for an hour and a half. I would listen to it, smile, and then I just look, look, look gleefully towards the next episode. I completely forgive them because I have been listening to them for seven years and I just adore them. It's a part of my life. People feel the same way about drive time DJs. You know, that audio is just inherently intimate like that. And I think for the, for the younger generation, these YouTubers, these video people, they, they feel that way about them. You can tell because they get mad, <laughs> you know, when they do something they don't like. Um, so some people can, if you're lucky enough to have a very funny personality, a very charming personality, you can get by without trying very hard. Well, even then, though, the try very hard part is the producer who found them, you know, and got them onto the show or, you know, the, the people that keep them going. There's there's no free lunch. And there are societies, and I'm very jealous of them, that pool their resources and then use a large, you know, a large bucket of those resources to fund art and creation and culture for art's sake. Uh, I'm, I'm old enough to have grown up on kids TV when half the content was bought from the National Film Board of Canada. So I have all these memories of like really weird <laughs> You know, like cartoons that were the reason they're weird is because they're made by a bunch of French Canadian artists who didn't have any profit motive. <laughs> and they're just these really weird things, you know. So other countries do this, but not ours. Uh, you know, yeah. we, we don't, you're not going to get it. So. You are not going to, you're probably not going to get an NEA grant for <laughs> making an actual play podcast. Uh, so you, it, it is always incumbent in that circumstance that you try to make something that is, I mean, listen, we talk about business models and capitalism and all that stuff. Data, until our we run out of air, it doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters unless you're making something that is so compelling to people they will pay for it. And it doesn't have to be constantly pedal to the metal good. I, you know, most stuff on Netflix sucks, but every once in a while they put out something pretty good, and so my house pays $10 a month for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like we live in a world where people are constantly subscribing to art and culture. And your job as an artist, you've got to make something so compelling that someone will pay for it. Otherwise, you do end up having to go to a Weinstein and ask for money. You do end up having to sell, you know, (laughs) Northrop Grunman ads uh, on on your podcast. Those are the options. Someone's got to pay for it. And if you want to get money from it, those are your three options. People that love you and care and will support you even when you suck because there's something about your work they find so compelling. (laughs) You know, the military industrial complex or a producer who is either going to take advantage of you or be great until they get fired six months later. And the person who comes and takes their spot cancels your show or they actually, you know, uh, exploit and abuse you. Um, Those are the options. That's kind of what we got. Or you could be born rich. Love being born oh, rich. Yeah. Would love oh, to I try wish. that. If only. Oh. Next time, oh. I'm, I'm going for that. Um, Me too. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely pay for the upgrade. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. I, will, I will opt yeah. in. Um, so you said a lot there. Um, no, I don't think so. <laughs> let's let's try so the tape. The, I don't know. I, did, I maybe did a time check. It was at least 15 minutes. God um, damn it! <laughs> uh, lots of good stuff in there. Lots of uh, lots of hot takes. People, I'm sure, will have opinions on. Not um, new though. I do want to say new. like you, you're consistent. Saying, you're consistent. Um, but also like it's 300 year old thought. Like one of the things I love that you said is that you said support the people around you. You know, when you find some success in art, turn around and, you know, pull other artists up with you kind of thing. And I think that there's a way that y'all are doing this on Worlds Beyond Number that 
as somebody who is, in addition to these podcasts, a game designer that I love, is you guys are playing these indie games on the Patreon feed. Not enough. Not enough. Yeah. Um, so far, but you did Roll for Shoes for County Affair. You did Tournament Arc for Cram Daniel. I know when you went to Gen Con over the summer, you had this massive haul you walked home with. So why is it important to you guys to play these indie games on the feed? And like, do you plan to do more of it going forward? Well, you know, and we talked a lot about this uh, when I was working at Kickstarters. Like, monoculture is bad. Shouldn't have everything be the same. It's just good for variety. You know, we also want to support people who are coming up in the space. I mean, like all of us got crazy lucky breaks. Like all of us, you know, I don't know anyone who is independently successful. Uh, You know, I just just don't know anyone like that. Um, Maybe they exist, but, you know. In the words of Barack Hussein Obama, you didn't build that. <laughs> Sorry to get political, guys. I love how you threw the middle name in there just, to, <laughs> just for laughs. Yeah, I really want to keep people guessing like what my loyalties are. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> uh, I, uh, <laughs> we like the challenge. We like fresh things. We want to support people coming up in space. Maybe, hopefully, give somebody a break like we all got at some point in our lives. But listen, I'll tell you, I, I think that's actually one of the things we've got to work on the most as a collective. Um, I'm, very, I'm, very, I'm loving the show, <laughs> you know. But uh, one of the things we can do as a collective with our platform is I really want us to do more. And, you know, Wizard the Witch and the Wild One being a D&D 5e game, and God, it's, sometimes it's so frustrating. It, it pisses me off to no end that Brennan is creating this, like, unbelievably rich and perfectly emotionally wrought fantasy world, but we have to have a spell called magic missile. Oh, gag me with a fucking spoon. I hate that shit. Um, so, and also our big campaign after this is definitely not going to be uh, D&D 5e. It's going to, well, we don't know exactly what it's going to be yet. I'm more, God, I, oh, it kills me that I can't say any of the specifics. Uh, but we're working on but it. But it's going it to be rules. a non-D&D game. That is great to hear about it. That yeah. a main feed, that there's plans for main feed games as well using other Yeah, systems. there's a lot of great stuff out there. I think in a- AP in general, like it's, you know, uh, we are living in a very different time than when the McElroys launched their second campaign and it wasn't D&D. Sure. Which at the time was, for them, a huge... And I'm, again, I'm talking just about podcasts here. I'm sure the timeline in video AP, which is much larger in general, is different. I'm just trying to keep stay in my zone here. But I, you know, when they gave it up, I remember they talked about you know, it felt risky and, 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 and scary. And at the time, you know, I, I totally get it. But now, now I think the audience is, is down to clown. Uh, especially once you've gotten people's trust over years, right? They'll they'll, they'll follow you. Uh, there are, pro- I mean, but you know, it is still a risky thing because the vocabulary of the shared rule set allows. And I'm sure you know. I'm, I know that I know that you know this. Um, talking to the listener here. Hey, hey, so come on, right here, NPR style. Um, right in your ear. Hi. <laughs> the shared rule set allows for such a connection in storytelling with the audience because they already know the stakes and the suspense of certain dice rolls, certain numbers, certain rules, certain mechanics like, say, the name of a spell like Magic Missile. So it's a very effective way to communicate with people that already know those 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 words and concepts. Can um, I throw a counterpoint at that? Do. Because I, I think that one of the issues with that 
is that – and people talk about this idea a lot that like – and we talked to somebody recently who said this explicitly that TTRPGs have an accessibility problem, like an accessibility wall you have to jump to get into them. Even D&D, which is very successful, does. And by – and this isn't a criticism – by relying on that shared vocabulary of D&D, you're inherently not accomplishing removing that barrier for the non-D&D listener. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Does that come out as clear as I thought? Okay. That's what you're saying. Yeah. 100%. And I think you can see this in other mediums as well. When you watch a movie that is too reliant on genre tropes and cliches, for instance, like you know, someone who watches – like an early Quentin Tarantino movie who doesn't have the vocabulary of pulp cinema, kung fu movies, all that stuff. They, they're not going to have the same relationship to some of the characters and iconography and lines as someone who is as well-versed in the materials that he's referencing, right? Uh, is that a challenge or a, I don't know if that's, you know, whatever. But like that's, that's not a problem specific to APs. But I do think the, if it is a problem, and even if it isn't a problem – the scene should be pushing to experiment with that, right? And I think this goes back to the monetization thing. Like, if we want to make work that is so compelling, people will pay us to hear more of it, then we've got to give them something they haven't gotten before. Because if they're already getting it, why would they pay for something else, right? And I think there's a lot of ways we can be pushing to make new stuff. And I think one of those ways has got to be, uh, has got to be getting out from the vocabulary rule set mechanics uh, of, of, of the same games that we always tend to play. It, that's, that should be a natural artistic evolution beyond any other considerations. We should be seeing more of that. And I think that the actual play audience is enough on board to where they'll, 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 they'll go with us. They'll support it. Um, and if it helps get new people on board, fine with me. Although I, I, I contend that real, and I have, I have failed at this thousands of times. Um, but I am, this is about an artistic aspiration, not a do as I do sort of thing. I do think that a really good producer and cast should be able to, uh, even if it's in post, like delineate, like give the right copy give the right lines to the cast members to convey the emotional mechanics of the rule set they're using so that a novice can listen to it and enjoy it, right? We know that a lot of people came came to the genre and to tabletop role-playing game through balance and through critical role. The shows that uh, that do use that game have brought new people into it. So we know that it's not impossible. Maybe we've exhausted that resource. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. But regardless of what the actual answer to any of those questions are, it is high time to see uh, people move away from the same mechanics and same vocabulary. And that is not because some games are better for certain stories than others. I think that is a tremendously overstated truism that is not as important as people think it is. Interesting. Yeah. But, but I mean, like, honestly, if you give me a good enough cast, I could make a compelling actual play show out of a game of chess. I think, I, I think that's true, but I think what, um, yeah, if, if you have a good enough cast, it doesn't matter what the system is, you're going to tell exactly. a good story. But, yeah. but but what I do think different systems do is allow a, a novice group or, or a group of strangers to come together and, t- and have a better chance at telling a great story or telling totally. a very specific story uh, than something like, like – like you can tell a sad space cowboy tale way better with Orbital Blues out of the box than you can with D&D for, for, have to play for a regular group of people. 
Yeah, that's very interesting. But see, I think we have found what is true about it in what you said, which is it's not that a game is right or wrong for a story. A game is right or wrong for a group of people. But I, I think it's right or wrong for a story for a group of people. I think that like – I think you're talking about a really small subset of groups of players that can – adapt in the way that I feel like you're talking about that should like we shouldn't necessarily hold players ad nauseum to where like there is the real strong benefit of playing with a rule set where every piece of that rule set informs and highlights like a specific kind of story. Um, I would recommend playing Orbital Blue specifically. I think that would give you a good sense of, of That's that. That's a good recommendation. I, I, there's something, I'm, I'm still not, I'm still not in full agreement. I think there's definitely something to that. I think what I was saying earlier, like rules is, Rules are a technology that we use to produce the shows. Uh, and obviously, like, the medium is the, you know, like, the shape of your technology will <laughs> will ultimately affect what you make with it. But I do think that there's often a misunderstanding of what in the game matches the story or people. For instance, like, we, uh, we have, uh, you know, there's a lot of, we, we've only had, like, one scene of combat. In worlds beyond number, which is you know uh, very I think very low for a D and D five E game, which and people say, well, that's a mismatch. That's a mismatch because there's most of the if you pick up the player's handbook, most of the pages are about <laughs> weapons and armor and fighting, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not a good match. The game is about battle, and so your show is not. Um, so it's a bad match. I, I think that's a way of, of misunderstanding the relationship between the production technology and the production you're making in that there is no rule system that's going to make Erica and Brennan not, you know, make a bad scene. <laughs> you know, like there's a, like they have improvised scenes with no, you know, like, oh, here's a friendship token or here's a tell the truth token. They do not need any tech to help them with that kind of play. Right. We do need tech to help us organize and agree on high stakes, fast paced, like logistical improvisation. So actually, that's the only rules we need are the battle rules because that's the only time it's really confusing. These motherfuckers can go out and tell emotionally resonant, tell stories about emotionally resonant characters all the live long day. We didn't need no help, but we definitely need help to know like, well, how many points does an axe do? Because you, you got to agree on that or you get fight. Now, I understand that that's, you know, not, not true for everyone, but, uh, I don't, you know, I'm not saying anyone's written a bad game or doing a bad job, but I, I do think that when I say we need to break away from the same games we always play, I want to be clear that I'm not saying the games are holding us back, and I'm not saying that changing the games is going to make your project financially successful. I think that breaking away, breaking into new games and new areas, and I really think, especially for audio, I would like to see more bespoke games and more bespoke systems, which I know goes against the helping indie players by playing their games philosophy. Unless you hire them. Unless you, yeah, yeah, exactly. That's a good point. Um, I think I just want to see more evolution of the medium in general. And that a symptom of that, like one effect of that, would be that we re- we reconsider our allegiance to the, the the same group of games we always play. Yeah, I think we're getting to the same thing here. I think the 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 last thing I'll say on this is I just think that like in this conversation, there is there is a the position of like 
Erica and Brennan's chemistry and ability as professional improvisers and professor professional performers is not something I want to put that I don't want to put that expectation on everybody picking up a game that like <laughs> you should just like try and play any kind of story in any kind of system because like for a lot of people, I think system makes a huge difference for their ability to tell different kinds of stories, yeah, both performers well, well, and non-performers. Yeah. For home games, yes. But I think if you're selling your performance for money, I you might want to consider like putting in time to try and learn how to do that without rules telling you how and when, which is hard. Like neither of them were born knowing how to do that. Oh no, uh, I'm not yeah, that's not yeah. to knock them and and say they didn't oh, put no, work in to get there. And we're fighting. <laughs> you got, they got knocked. You knocked them. <laughs> Uh, I, I had a I had a, a thought on kind of a, a metaphor to compare these things, and that is by relying on a single rule set, you are you are share, you are speaking in a shared language of which you are all incredibly fluent. You can tell jokes in that language. You know exactly like if I say like "haha magic missile," you know, you know whatever D four, you can tell a joke. But when you start, almost like in other languages, there are expressions and idioms that do not translate into English. Mm-hmm. There are, or they do, but you've got to take a really roundabout way rather than just saying the word. I feel like utilizing other systems will allow you to get to that thought quicker. And because you have the word for it, you have the single thing for it, rather than having to kind of go roundabout ways to say this expression. Yeah, I and you know, I, I think about games like uh, Fiasco, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, not new, but certainly beloved. That's that's a really good example of. Like, I'm surprised we don't see more uh, games that are more shows built around games like that that are specifically to help with scene structure. Which seems like I mean, Fiasco was famously like in their in their materials. They say inspired by right, like Coen Brothers movies and other like funny thrillers and crime. You know, bumbling crime stories. It's great. Uh, it's 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 a great pitch for a game. Like it seems like it would be so simple to just like immediately pick that up and boom, you're right back. Just turn that right back into media because it's already structured like that. That I think because I'll tell you like. Structure is hard, especially at the table. Structure is easy for me sitting in my nice, you know, I got all day to listen to the audio and like figure out the structure. But at the table, it's tough. You know, when you're learning, when you're learning improv, they tell you never go for plot. It's one of the first things they teach you. Don't try to build a scene around plot. Stay away from it. Think about character. Uh, that's that's always your go-to. Think about characters and, you know, the one strange thing in the scene that someone can repeat over and over again until you repeat it really bigly for the third time and then you know thank god you get to do something else never go for plot and what we're doing in actual play is very much going for plot right we're doing the thing that they tell you don't do because it is hard because plot can fuck you up on stage when you're performing for a live audience you don't have an editor there's no post you can't rearrange things plot can be tough to make up on the fly but now we have an entire like we have an entire entertainment industry built on the fact that some people are doing this very well uh, and so I, we should, you know, I, so I think that like a game like Fiasco that helps you structure the like narrative arc of a thing. I'm surprised we don't see more games like that in actual play, stuff like that. Maybe because it's so, it, it is a movie structure instead of a ongoing series, which are just going to do better in the market because they're what we call always on. Um, uh, for people who don't know, that's a podcast term. Some podcasts like an eight 
uh, eight episode miniseries. They're, I don't know what the word is for that, but the shows that are on every week or every day or every two weeks, they're called Always On. And it is far easier to monetize Always On content than it is limited run stuff. Ask any audio journalist. They have to figure out who's going to pay for their show before they launch an episode. Whereas we get to just jump off a cliff <laughs> and impress people with how we're falling and then hope that they like build a big pillow underneath us. I, I really got hit in the face this morning by uh, the quote. I, I don't know where this came from, but it, it like hit me in the face and I was like, Bleh. and it was uh, the reward for good work is more work. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just Welcome like, to hell. oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't need that at 9 a.m. I just didn't need that thought in my head when I'm looking at the, the raw copy of an episode that I have to edit. It's interesting, though. I love what she said because, like, I th- I think – uh, God, I guess though, not me personally. Um, above that, we don't do a live stream show every time we record a new season. Yeah, I am always so grateful for the ability to, and this has happened to us where we have, you know, part of a recording, and we're like, that really didn't work. We should, we should re-record that, and like, that's a that's a real blessing for like the kind of show we get to make. A lot of actual plays are live streamed, and like, that is a whole different skill set. Um, you know, there's a lot of crossover, but there is like. There's a different skill to like I'm live on mic or I'm live on stage and people are paying attention um, on the fly. That's not really yeah. a question. It's just a thought on what you were saying that I'm just glad. <laughs> I'm glad we're in the pre-recorded yeah. podcast world. I, yeah, no, me, me too. And like a, a lot of the things I was just saying are about podcasting, like specifically because, as you said, a lot of video uh, people um, do do this live in front of folks. And man, if you can do that and have a great, a, a well-structured narrative, ooh, baby, I love it. You know, that's that that shit is very hard. And I'm always impressed, and uh, I'm just glad we work in an area where people can do that. I mean. There's listen. There's a lot of podcast episodes, especially Worlds Beyond Number. I don't touch the structure. Like it's just very light editing, and those guys just take care of it at the table. Boom, laying it down. Not always the case, but that happens. And which is very funny because you know, first 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 day in old improv school, the one thing they tell you to do is don't do that. Uh, you know, but it's it's like they're telling you don't go in that room. <laughs> don't you dare go in that room and you open it up and it, you know, it's critical role, $6 million Kickstarter. <laughs> and there's like, Oh, they found out if you can improvise, <laughs> if you can improvise narrative, <laughs> people will throw wheelbarrows of money at you uh, to make your thing. It's a scary uh, yeah, room. Crazy. Boy, is it lucrative. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's also a great way. It's, 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 it's great. I, I think it's, um, it's a great way to make stuff because you can't, you, you just can't deny other people. It, it forces you into an egalitarian mindset. It forces you to respect uh, and to acknowledge and even just internalize um, other people's concepts, other people's ways of seeing the world, how they feel and think. In, in, in the same way that consensus decision-making, we talked about this in the previous episode, like creates meaning where most of their models – kill it, which is at work. Uh, I think that like making up these stories, you know, in front of people, um, is good. I think it's just good, good for the spirit. I, I <laughs> so I'm excited that people are talking about, uh, you know, getting more money into it. Cause I want to see it stick around for a long, long time. Us too. You and me both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do love that the conversation itself is meaningful. That was like kind of how you started this the 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 money conversation point is that and this is something we've talked about with Dr. Emily Friedman and Eric Silver when it comes to like legitimization of the space uh before money of like 
talking about it in a serious, legitimate way helps make it more legitimate and serious. And again, like the same thing with money, talking about the need for money yes. in the space helps move the conversation forward by the act of having it. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. Yeah. I've worked so many artists I've worked with. It's, it is like pushing a rock up a hill to get them to feel free to think about this seriously. You know, you're not, <laughs> you're not, you know, it's okay to like what you do so much that you want it to happen again. And that means you need money. It is okay to think about that. Uh, you know, we, it's like I was saying earlier, it's like some of us, we would do it. We would do it for free. Right. We, we would go hard for but free. But it'd be great to do it and eat and live yeah. Because of it. Because <laughs> so, someone's always paying for even if Even if you do it for free and you do it on your off time, that art exists as a blind subsidy from your boss because they are giving you the money to live. And with that life, you are making this art. So your boss doesn't know it, but they are subsidizing the art you make. And, if, so, and, and so for some people, that's totally fine. For some projects, that makes a lot of sense. This stuff is fun to make even when it doesn't make money. So like, don't let you – know, people shouldn't say, oh, it will never make money. I won't do it. No, no, no. Do it. If it's fun for you, do it. But like the money – everything takes time. Well, and at worst, it's not money. Time. It's also like you're paying with – Hours of your life, you know, exactly. like, 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 even if it's not, even if you don't want to think about like your boss subsidizing it, you're, you're paying well, they are. with, well, yeah, uh, but you're like paying with like your loved ones and your friends and your personal like time and possibly health. Like, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's yeah. a payment no matter how you're looking at it. Oh, buddy, let me tell you about it. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a payment no matter what's going on. Someone's paying for it. Everybody's got to serve somebody. Right. So it is in your best interest to acknowledge it. And take control of it to the degree that you you can or and are able. This is from our last conversation that you you had a line that I really liked that was, um, I hope that people stop seeing actual play as an extension of the game space and start seeing it as its own form of entertainment. And I do think that in the conversations about money, oddly enough, like that, and I guess Elliot, you were saying it too, like the legitimization of it. The second we can say actual play, and it's the same thing as saying movie or music. And we can like, then you can talk about subgenres or like people just inherently get what you say, or at least a large enough portion of the population that it, you know, works out financially. That's the thing that we need to get to. I don't know how you get there other than just like telling yeah. as many people as possible about it. But a show is as good and as big as World Beyond's number is certainly helping to do that. I think the way we get there is rather than asking and this is and, and like this is true in all the media, right? Rather than asking the world to change itself and come to us, we should be like, how can we sneak into how, like how, you know how do we break into the world and take what we want? So I think that instead of asking like um, instead of asking people who don't give a shit about the rules of D and D to start listening to actual play, we should make work. That is so compelling that when they hear about it, they cannot not listen to episode two. That's that's how we do it. Is listen net, when Netflix when Netflix launched, right? Nobody wanted to pay fucking for streaming when they first launched. The quality was terrible. It, it didn't make any sense. Everybody thought it was a weird technological like flash in the pan. And then House of Cards dropped, and then everyone in America had to have a subscription to Netflix because we're talking about House of Cards at work. That's what you have to do. You ha like we have to constantly try and make something so compelling that everyone has to learn about us because the idea of not listening to it, not watching us, is 
unfathomable. So, okay, so great, easy solution. All we have to do is become the most talked about thing in the world. Great. Yes. <laughs> yes. But I think there's, I, but I think there's no, no, steps no, no, within I, this I, that I we've identified that are great. Yeah. Um, we were talking to um, Rowan Zioli, who's an incredible journalist in the space, um, about this recently. And Rowan talked about this idea of like, she wants to see the actual play that has the equivalent of like a blockbuster movie yes. pull and feel to it. You know, something that is like easy for the non-actual play person to go to, absorb, and like get sold on the medium by. Um, and then I pitched the horrible name of Podbusters, um, which nobody liked on the call. Um, <laughs> and you're but, still holding on to it. You've brought it up. And again. I'm you could have let it die. Holding on to it. <laughs> Um, we I'm could have cut it out of that it. episode, but now that you've re-referenced it, we have to keep it in both episodes. We're keeping it in two <laughs> episodes. Um, but I think this is something we've talked about in like thinking about, you know, new shows that we might want to make. And one of the ways that we think we reach this audience is almost hiding the players and the mechanics, you know, like, like. Hiding the not veggies. like yeah, hiding the veggies of of the, the, hiding that thing that get, go, makes people go wait, what kind of show is this? And like leaving in everything that just makes them go, this is a great fucking story that I am compelled to. Um, yeah, and some people say that the way to do that is to remove parasociality. I am of the opinion that like podcasts are inherently parasocial medium. Like I won't, I can't speak for all forms of actual play or all forms of media, but the intimacy of being in someone's ears, I feel like you just have to have parasociality, whether that's to a fictional character or a real person is maybe the, where the debate lands, but. Well, people are parasocial with fictional characters. Totally. If, if we expand the definition of parasocial to include, right, social relationships to fictional characters. Uh, so I, I as far as I, I, I think that's. Totally wrong uh, for the direction. Uh, if it is possible, I think it would only be possible in audio because only in audio can you have the post-production quality. It, right? It, if, if we're talking about normal AP budgets, only in audio do you have uh, the budget and the production style that can break away fully from the table. Uh, whereas video, unless you have – the, the, you know, the lost pilot budget, if you have a feature film budget, there's a reason blockbusters cost a lot of money to make. And it's because blockbusters cost a lot of money to make, you know, uh, that is a lot of money on video. Whereas if we try really hard and are willing to stay up a few nights, we can do the same thing in audio for almost no money uh, or, you know, relatively no money. So I do think if someone wanted to completely cut the players out, it has to be an audio because the budget doesn't exist for it in video. I think video will always encourage more parasociality because, um, you, especially in group shots, you can see more social activity. Uh, whereas in audio, you, unless multiple people are talking, you don't see a lot of the reactions and a lot of the facial expressions, the physicality is cut off. And also in video, you are, unless you have a blockbuster budget, in which case you're not making an actual play, you're making a movie. Uh, you know, or maybe an actual play was used to make it. I mean, some, now, now we, now we're getting into like the definition of actual play, which I am done having that conversation for the rest of my <laughs> life. I've, I've thought it's, you know, I, I think we're at a dead end there. I will say that like people will I will I will see this about podcasts. You never see it about you know, you don't see it a lot about video stuff. Sometimes a moment there'll be a moment in a video actual play where people will say that felt cinematic or it felt but 
there's something about it. You're always locked into that visual that is not that is out of the fiction. Now, we're, and to be clear here, we are ignoring a large project called Harmon Quest that was way ahead of its time and was unfortunately cursed to like an unseen uh, uh, two failed streaming platforms. Uh, but uh, that show really should get its due because it is a fantastic take on how to make actual play extremely well produced and done by Spencer Crittenden. Uh, extremely well done show um, that should be considered more when we talk about stuff like this. But they had a, they had an animation budget and we don't right so I do think you see I see the cinematic nature of it applied a lot more to audio stuff than video because audio you elide that problem of being locked into the uh, to the table video feed thinking about how movies act and how TV shows act is a big inspiration for me I I when I'm designing an episode I don't think about other sh- other podcasts I don't think about actual play I think about movies and TV. I think about X-Files and Lost and Star Trek The Next Generation and I think about all the George Lucas and Steven Spielberg movies and and uh, and Zemeckis uh, films from when I was growing up that I couldn't take my eyes off of you know that's like that's what I'm thinking about and I think that you know I hope that comes across in some of our stuff with Worlds Beyond Number. I think the climax of chapter one was a pretty good example where we were able to manage like some big giant blockbuster feeling moments. Um, I, I hope so. I really tried really hard, especially with the first audio we released, the prequels, those first scenes of each people. And I, however, I, I would be sad if actual play as a, we need experimentation. So someone, and I know that some people have already been doing this. I think Dark Dice says this to some degree, right? Don't they, do they re-record? Yeah. They re-record the lines with the actors? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. right, that's completely abstracted. So in that circumstance where someone is taking the actual play transcript and having voice actors reread it, right, you, then then that is a very clear case where the, the, the rules are a production technology because you're not seeing any of it, right? It's just the same person that goes to see a movie doesn't see the, doesn't see like the, 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 the window of After Effects <laughs> or, you know, right, uh, right, uh, Premiere right. Pro, whatever, Final Cut, you know, around the movie. It, that's, it's, it's a tool that's imposed and you never hear about it again. I would be sad if all of actual play moved towards that area because I think one of the things that makes it special is that it combines the the big three things of actual play, which is story, like you know, the fiction, the world, the characters, story, uh, music, and friends hanging out and being funny with each other, which we know are the three most successful things in audio. Uh, so, you know, so, so it's coming at it from the audio world. Why would I leave one of those things behind? Uh, we know that people, you know, that's, that's the people love that stuff. And actual play is, is the combination of all three of those together. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I, I, this is inevitably when I hang out with other actual play people, this is what, this is what we all end up talking about. Right. Is like, does this thing have legs beyond the audience we've already got? <sighs> Every time we have that conversation, the audience is bigger. So we have to ask ourselves like, but also <laughs> there's that famous, I think it was a Futurama joke. <laughs> the guy that working at like the, uh, <laughs> the record company <laughs> and behind him is a graph that says like disco record sales. And the line oh, just yes, goes straight up to the right. And he's like, Hey, if current trends continue, <laughs> you know, we're in the money, baby. <laughs> so you don't want to be the disco record sales guy. Um, <laughs> we don't want to be those people. That's like, yeah, we're going to take all media will be actual play. Um, you know, within 10 years or in our lifetime or anything, I don't want to be that, but also, the fundamentals are so strong. 
the fundamentals are so strong. People are never not going to want to hear stories. They're never not going to want to hear music. They're never not going to hear people, charming, funny people, hanging out and being friends. That we just we know for a fact that all those elements are beloved. They have legs. And there's a variety of business use cases for all of them. So the idea that actual play is like going away, I just don't buy. I don't buy it because the fundamentals are pretty strong. Now, if someone takes away RSS from me, we're we're fucked. Then we're all going to become we're all we're all going to become it's going to be like Metropolis. It's just going to be all of us in our little sad bags of dice marching into the great Spotify maw. You know, as it just as these gears just turn us into you know flesh paste for the mantis guy that works on the top floor. Um, but as long as we've got RSS feed and as long as you know the video um, the video platforms are still relatively easy and cheap to use, I think we're good to go. I'll take it. With that um, image. <laughs> with that image in mind. So as, as we kind of wind this down, the last question we always like to end uh, the show with is a question called, what do you bring into the table? So th- this is us asking, what is a, a person, a game, a show, a resource, whether within tabletop, within podcasting, outside of it, anything you're excited about right now that you'd want to recommend to our listeners? <sighs> yeah, Triangle Agency comes out this year. Hell yeah. Oh. You're the second person this week to say Triangle Agency. We were just talking to Caleb yesterday. That, uh, I, it fucking kills me that I do not have the bandwidth to publish a show using Triangle Agency. It kills me. So I'm really hoping that someone out there does, uh, does make a great show of Triangle Agency. Um, I really, and whoever does, Whoever does uh, can ask for any sexual favor from me, and the answer will be yes. You get one. I'm, I got a little coupon book, and I'll give them the coupon book, and they can do whatever they want. Uh, and they'll, they'll, they, there will they will be handsome heroes, and everybody should love them and let them commit any crimes. Uh, that's how I feel about that. Great love. recommendation. Excellent we will recommendation. link Triangle Agency once again in the show notes. It's not the first time, and it won't be the last. <laughs> Uh, hold on again. Oh, listen. Do y'all know what start playing games is? Yeah. Yeah. I just found out about it last summer, uh, and I joined a game in it, and it's one of the best things in my life. I love it so much. Hell yeah. It's very cool. Mm. Uh, we'll link that in the show notes, too. They're great, great people over there. Taylor, thank you so much for coming back to the table. A pleasure. Uh, always a pleasure. Never a chore. Oh, I love to hear that. You want to let people know where they can find you online if they're looking for you? Don't. <laughs> Leave me alone. Perfect. On to the next. And with everything you said in this episode, they're gonna want to find you. Uh, I, uh, oh God, the, the, the mantis lobby is gonna. <laughs> like, we're yeah. actually very nice. Spotify upper management is coming for you. <laughs> hey, listen. All that. Listen. I, I, if Amazon wants to work with me, if Spotify wants to work, I will hear pitches. I will hear pitches. And if you want more gaming content from us please check out the 20-sided newsletter and the many-sided media discord where you can rant and rave about everything Taylor has said today to us. Those will both be linked in our show notes. Please rate, review, and follow Talk of the Table wherever you get your podcasts because it makes us feel real good. And that's what the table is talking about. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. If you're hearing this, that means you have listened to every last second of this episode. And that 
probably makes you a fan of this show. Well, if you're a fan and you like what we're doing and want to help others find it as well, then consider leaving us a five-star review over on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. Getting more ratings really does help more people find the show, and reading your nice words about the things that we put out into the world makes us feel all warm and good inside, and we want more of those good, good feels. So head on over to your podcast player of choice and leave us a five-star review. Thanks.